My name is Bill Garvlink, and this is the CSIS series on careers in development. And with us today is, is Rodney Bent. And I think we're going to have kind of an interesting discussion. I think I first met Rodney when you were at OMB in the, what, 80s or 90s, something like that. But Rodney has had a long career, not just at OMB, but he was the acting CEO of the Millennium Challenge Corporation. He did some time in Iraq with the Ministry of Finance there. He was with the House Appropriations Committee. Uh, he's worked in the private sector for banks in Booz Allen Hamilton. And uh, what am I missing? You were at the State Department. Treasury uh, Department. Treasury Department. Can't hold a job, apparently. It just kind of, kind of moved around a lot. But he is one of the most experienced uh, Washington folks I know of on, on de uh, development assistance and these sorts of issues. So without going on any further, I'll turn it over to Rodney. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I will speak for a couple of hours. No, just joking. Uh, um, I thought what I might do is just take five minutes and give you the galloping gourmet overview of what I've seen um, uh, change in development, but and I'm really talking about uh, U.S. official assistance and, and how it's changed over the last 30, 40 years. Um, in addition to my checkered criminal past that uh, Bill referred to, um, some other parts of it that I usually don't put down, uh, I was born in Beirut because my father was a professor teaching at the American University of Beirut, and he loved to travel. He loved the Middle East, so we also spent time in, in uh, Ankara, Turkey as a, as a kid. And uh, I, at, a, at one point, thought I wanted to be a Foreign Service officer, so we can talk about uh, what I think has changed about the State Department over the last 30 or 40 years. On development, um, I started off working at the Treasury Department in 1978, which was probably a decade before most of you were born, uh, doing international trade uh, negotiations on export credits. And back then, the entire name of the game was government-to-government uh, -government relationships. It was all, uh, in this case, a result of the Rambouillet Summit in 1974, in which uh, there had been an agreement to reduce official export credit subsidies, but it had been done in a very uh, stilted way, meaning the same interest rate uh, disirregardless of currency. So if you were lending in a French franc or a Japanese yen or an Austrian shilling or a U.S. dollar, British pound, it was all the same uh, interest rate. And so when I started at the Treasury Department, uh, it was one of those sort of, uh, gee, here's a problem in the sense that we were pushing out these subsidies, uh, largely in our case from Exim Bank and OPIC and elsewhere, and everybody else was pushing out subsidies, and couldn't we do a better job for the taxpayer of trying to uh, equalize the playing field so that buyers could make choices on the basis of price, quality, and service as opposed to official financing? And so it was one of these blinding uh, insights of the obvious in which, well, let's vary interest rates by currency. And back then, there were high interest rate currencies and low interest rate currencies. Swiss franc would be a low interest rate, the Austrian shilling, Japanese yen. But uh, those of you who can remember sort of, uh, maybe none of you, maybe Bill, 16% uh, mortgage rates, uh, you know, it was a huge difference. Uh, when you were lending at 7.5% and borrowing at 16, you can't make it up on volume. So that was kind of my start. And what I would say is that 
looking at development, it was very much a government-to-government kind of thing. Um, AID would, and the AID was the preeminent uh, foreign aid agency. People would talk about, uh, gee, what does AID think? Um, back, and you'll remember all of these names, uh, Ernie Stern and the um, the policy, what was it, PPC? Very small group of uh, influential thinkers that really shaped uh, what development was about. Development had gone through uh, a lot of changes. I mean, in fact, the first U.S. De uh, foreign aid assistance, if you will, was to help Venezuela with a famine back in the early 1800s. So we've, we've got a very long tradition of having uh, provided commodities, but it was obviously after World War II and the Marshall Plan that the institutions really began to take root. But they were always government-to-government -government institutions, even though if you go back and you look at the Marshall Plan, a lot of it was human. Uh, they would send uh, cobblers from France to shoe factories in Kansas City to see, oh, well, there are other techniques in terms of uh, making shoes. But part of it was not only official assistance, but it was the we who know something and you who don't. We will transmit our knowledge to you. There was, uh, in a whole variety of ways in the middle 60s, sort of a focus on institutionalization. How do you build the institutions in, in quote, third world, developing, less developed countries, or all these sort of uh, tender ways of saying uh, you know, you're poor. Uh, what, what did it take? My father uh, believed strongly in the importance of a strong civil service, and so how did you teach uh, public administration? That's what political science should be about. It was, it was kind of a science, uh, if you will. But in the late 70s, uh, or I guess more the early 70s, uh, basic human needs uh, were, were important. What should we do on agriculture, feeding, education, health? And the mantra was essentially there were the needy out there and we should focus our assistance on the needy. There are a couple of great books, and Bill can give you more on this because uh, he lived it. Um, you know, what, what should American assistance be? Same time, you have the Peace Corps being set up by President Kennedy. It was very much a send Americans abroad so that they will learn about uh, uh, the world. In the same way, my dad was a, a GI in World War II, so um, there was kind of a, a huge uh, recognition of the foreign world. He was a Midwesterner. He'd never been outside of the country, and so World War II and, and uh, his service was a big opening uh, to seeing a, a much bigger, bigger world out there. Anyway, long, you know, moving rapidly along, what I think has changed over the last 30 years are, one, governments are much, much less relevant. Foreign assistance is much, much less relevant. People realize that development is a whole series of uh, strands coming together. It's education. It's culture. It's um, uh, the kinds of human capital that are necessary in terms of either health or education, but it's more than that. It's the kind of institutions you have, and it's good policies, um, policies that, you know, in some sense promote uh, freedom and the, the liberation of the individual, if you will, to to do things. Obviously, in a in a regulated context, what what I think has also happened is that the institutions of government have changed um, somewhat slowly, somewhat begrudgingly. Um, I think that the kind of skill sets that, that you all bring are very different from the kind of skill sets that if you'd been, if CSIS had existed 30 or 40 years ago, 
uh, it would have been people who, well, have you gone through the Peace Corps? Um, you know, if you've gone through the Peace Corps and you wanted to work in development, you would have been talking about going to AID. Now uh, you have the Millennium Challenge Corporation, have AID, but you also have the Gates Foundation, Rockefeller, and Ford. And some of these were, were around. I don't mean to imply somehow, uh, you know, the Ford and Rockefeller, who in some measure were responsible for the uh, Green Revolution, haven't always been there. But there are just many more actors. There are many more NGOs. The private sector has done a huge amount with uh, development. I think the explosion... Um, in countries like Africa and Latin America, and, and watching some of the companies that uh, operate, uh, for example, in Africa, Standard Charter, some of the others, what, what they're doing, cell phone companies, it's just been an incredible diversity. So there isn't any one path uh, through development. I think because of my background at, at OMB, um, I've always been acutely aware of the resources. And most people think... Uh, Gee, we're, we're, we don't spend a lot on foreign aid. And on the one hand, there is the uh, usual poll that says uh, when you ask Americans how much do we spend, they always say, ah, oh, 20, 25% of the federal budget goes for foreign aid. Okay, it's less than 1%. On the other hand, um, what people don't recognize is that when I left OMB 10 years ago, the foreign aid budget, all 150, was about 20, 22 billion dollars, and now it's close to 50. So there has been. We do spend a lot of money on foreign aid, and yet there's not always a lot of transparency about what it goes for or whether it works. And so those, I'm trying to throw out a little red meat for the themes here because I'd really much rather spend time talking um, about what you're interested in. What I was hearing, um, health, economic development, some regional interest, human rights, um, legal rights, um, all rich areas for uh, discussion. And I think I'll stop there. Well, um, we'll open it up to questions in a, in a minute or so, but I'd like to get you to focus on just one aspect of your career and mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that because I, I, I don't think many people are quite aware of the role OMB plays mm -hmm. in the budget process. Everybody thinks the, the, the real heavy budget cuts and changes come with Congress. They don't really. Yeah. You did all of that. For I, you. <laughs> I did. I did. I, I mean, I'm... Uh, I love OMB, uh, and uh, that's not, you know, usually people have uh, absolutely the wrong image of OMB. It's, uh, you know, sort of uh, accountants uh, toiling away in obscurity. Uh, if you've been at an agency dealing with OMB, it's, uh, gee, who are these young folks who are giving me these diktats, and, and what can I do about it? What I think is um, important about OMB is that it tries to bring together what all the agencies are doing. Sometimes it does it well, sometimes less well. But um, if you don't have uh, a central White House partner looking at resources and asking the questions, then you get chaos. And I will say that having seen chaos in all of its forms, either in Iraq or on the Hill, um, it is much better to have uh, somebody at the White House looking at the resource implications of a Syria or of a Mali. Uh, you need to integrate what uh, the Defense Department, the State Department, AID, and others are doing. Most, in my experiences, most agencies get uh, pretty parochial pretty quickly, and so they will talk about what they can do. They rarely talk about what would be necessary, and uh, in part because they know some of the budget realities. They know that resources are going to be limited. But I think there's also been a tendency not to look at what others are doing. So, for example, 
Um, in Iraq, uh, there were a whole series of other donors, Arab donors, other don Japanese, um, that we needed to know more about. And instead, the State Department <coughs> would focus on what it would do, or the Defense Department on what it could do. And so I think it's essential that you have a much more open sure. uh, kind of view, which isn't to in any way, uh, I think there are also weaknesses. Uh, most people at OMB uh, don't get out to the field. There's kind of a hair shirt mentality. So I will say, having uh, been at the other end of OMB when I was in Iraq and at the MCC, I would go back and I would have a number of recommendations about how to make OMB both more understanding of the challenges that agencies face and probably more cognizant of what it takes uh, to do things. Uh, at OMB, it's very much, well, here's the budget guidance. It's up to you how you live with it, as opposed to, okay, well, what do you want to do and how can you make it more sensible? Is that? Yeah. Okay, now on to the main event, in which <laughs> I hope you guys will, I've been throwing out a little bit of red meat in hopes that you guys will have had enough coffee to ask good questions. So, and I'll call on people if you don't, so. Sure. <laughs> Let's see. Does that work? Yes, maybe? Okay. Um, so you mentioned that there's not a lot of transparency necessarily in terms of where aid money is spent and how well it works. Mm -hmm. So could you talk a little bit about accountability and what sure. you think is necessary to improve that aspect of it? Sure. Um, there, how many people have seen the, the dashboard that the State Department puts up on its website? Okay. What the dashboard will tell you is that we are spending $30 million on health in Boonie Goonie. What it won't tell you is who's doing it, and is it a contract or a grant? Who are the beneficiaries? If the beneficiaries were at state A and T0, or where are they at state B at T minus or T plus 10? won't tell you who else is working in the area. It won't tell you um, whether the participating parties, whether it's a host government or <clears throat> another agency, are also working in the area. There's no acknowledgment that the World Bank spends multiples more doing uh, loans uh, in possibly the same area. I think um, there, the Obama administration, I wrote a blog on this, has done I give them two cheers. I think that, uh, one, they want to be more open and transparent. There's the over, uh, what do they call it, OGP, Open Government uh, Protocols, yeah. Process, something. Yeah. Um, but I think it's just way, 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 way short of what's necessary. And I think that uh, for any number of reasons. One, I think uh, bureaucrats are naturally risk averse. Uh, and so if there's no leadership, nobody wants to take a risk. Um, two. Uh, agencies, as I mentioned, can be very parochial. Uh, three, I think that it's hard work. Uh, you, if you're at uh, the State Department or at OMB, you recognize that, okay, are you talking obligations or outlays? Are you talking uh, the face value of a contract or a grant? There's a lot of background uh, heavy-duty lifting that's necessary to make the numbers meaningful. And so people, I think, in the bureaucracy opt for less is more. Uh, you'll never be criticized for not putting something out, whereas if you put out a monitoring uh, or an evaluation that says, hey, we did sort of an okay but not great job, well, you know, there's uh, zero tolerance on the part of the Hill. You know, somebody may pick that report up and, you know, beat you around the head and shoulders. So it takes... Um, leadership. And I think it starts at the top of each agency and people have to take risks and they have to drive these things through. I think there's a lot more that the U.S. government ought to be doing. I frankly 
at the MCC, partly because we were a threatened agency, we uh, bent over backwards to be transparent. Uh, we talked about our beneficiaries. We talked about who implemented. We talked about uh, the problems, figuring that candor is always better and that uh, you can't make a sale to a, a hesitant Congress if they don't know what they're buying. I think for more established agencies, it's kind of like, oh, well, they'll give us the money anyway. Um, so let's, you know, we're, we're going to uh, cite urgent national interest and sort of be a little bit vague. So that's a long answer to a short question. No, so. Good answer. Thank you. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Here. Hi, Rodney. wanted to um, ask you a little bit about your time at MCC and um, put us back in history on where that fits into the context and sort of where it was when you joined and then sort of the politics of what was going on in the United States and then also your views on where it's headed over the next five to ten years. Uh, that's, a, that's a challenging and good question. Yeah. Um, the MCC was created in huge secrecy uh, because the Bush administration had come under so much criticism for acting unilaterally. Uh, Bush was going to go off to uh, the Monterey Summit, and there was this feeling of, well, we've got to, we can't just be negative all the time. We've got to do something positive. But um, by the same token, they didn't want to just put more money into AID, which candidly they regarded as uh, as, as broken. Um, not because they didn't have a great deal of respect for Andrew Natsios, but that if you were going to do development, um, you needed to do it in a different way. So great secrecy. It was announced. It was going to be $5 billion a year, I think. Um, and after the announcement, I'd only heard about it literally the night before uh, they made the announcement when I was sort of ushered over to the NSC and told, okay, this is coming out tomorrow. You'll need to explain it. <laughs> what is it? Uh, well, it'll be a new institution, and it'll be $5, uh, $5 billion a year, and it'll work in partnership with countries. Oh, great. Um, obviously, uh, after the announcement, there was a huge amount of bureaucratic toing and froing. Um, AID, Andrew Natsios, argued that it should be just like Saturn uh, as part of the GM. It would be a wholly owned subsidiary, but it would do business in a different way. Um, a working group was created. I was the chair of the OMB part of the working group. Again, OMB playing that essential role of uh, bringing agencies together, acting as kind of a neutral broker. State Department was involved because they wanted to make sure that human rights, legal rights uh, uh, were part of the equation. Other agencies had more or less vested interests, Treasury Department. Um, after sort of, I'd say, about a year of wrangling, uh, some of uh, which had to be decided at the principal's level, meaning cabinet level at the NSC, they decided, one, it would be a separate institution, two, that it would be really small. Um, we were thinking about 50 to 100 people initially. Three, that we um, would use criteria that would be done by third parties, but which criteria and where they would come from, all to be determined. Uh, if, frankly, uh, it hadn't been for Jim Colby on the House Appropriations Committee who thought that it was a good idea, and, frankly, for the strong personal intervention of President Bush, it would not have happened. Um, people take it as a given now, but I can tell you it, it would have uh, just foundered, uh, except that the White House staff knew that it was important to President Bush. There was a clear direction that, uh, no, we were to get this off the ground and... and uh, no more stalling, no more listening. Uh, 
It went to the hill. Jim uh, was great. Uh, it changed along the way. The original notion had been that it would be a board that would be entirely of the executive branch, but in fact, on the hill, they added four private sector members, uh, one each from majority, minority, House and Senate. And I thought that uh, at the time, it was like, how can they do that? Um, when I was at the MCC, I was profoundly grateful that they had done that. <laughs> Uh, because it put a break a little bit on some of the, the government think that, that tends to take place. Um, the startup was rocky. Uh, I was, uh, frankly, in Iraq when um, it, it got launched, and so I didn't really have much more to do with it. I came back. I kind of knew about it um, you know, because I'd been part of the, the original brain trust writing some of the memos, but it had. Uh, Paul Applegarth had been named as the first CEO uh, Paul is a very bright uh, venture capitalist kind of guy, and he tried to bring uh, a different style. Uh, but uh, part of what happened is that the MCC was, you know, billed itself as the, the anti-AID. So naturally, you don't win friends by saying, oh, you're corrupt and flawed. Uh, and, you know, we were created because, you know, you were deficient. So kind of not surprisingly, the AID folks abroad who had this wealth of experience uh, were not terribly friendly towards the MCC. Uh, the new head of the MCC, uh, because things had been moving slowly, the disbursements, uh, Bush uh, decided to make a change in management, uh, one of those uh, uh, abrupt things that almost never happens in Washington where the head of an agency, you know, who hasn't caused a scandal, hasn't uh, done something wrong, is, is ousted. And so the new head was a guy called John Danilovich who had been in the shipping business in London and, and was ambassador to Brazil. Uh, I got a call saying, would you talk to John? Uh, he's looking for either a chief of staff or a head of admin or a head of policy, and, and he'd like to talk with you. So I ended up at the MCC. Um, quickly realized that everything that I had seen um, as in Iraq um, was missing. How do you create partnerships with folks? Uh, my first trip abroad, uh, I was appalled at the uh, uh, way in which our relationship with AID had been handled. And essentially, I said, this is silly. We've got people at AID who really know the country. We don't. We're parachuting in. Uh, we need to change that dynamic. So we cut all of the crap about, oh, we were created because AID was broken and said, it's a partnership. We do different things than AID, and we need to take advantage of what they do. So the dynamic slowly changed. I think um, where it's going, uh, I've always thought that the MCC was a targeted instrument. It can't do humanitarian aid. It can't do commodities. It can't do security assistance. It can't do um, any number of things that other agencies can do. Um, but I do think the basic principles of using third-party criteria to filter, of working in partnership uh, with what countries want as opposed to will they acquiesce in it, um, is important. I think you could adopt a lot of the principles for the health aid programs, for the food aid programs. Um, but that doesn't mean that MCC should do them. Uh, and I've always thought that uh, it should be bigger than it is. Um, but and, and frankly, like a lot of government agencies, the longer you're in business, the more um, people who've been there say, ah, oh, we tried that. I don't want to do that. Oh, it didn't work before. So, you know, it's it, challenging in government to keep things fresh. Uh, I like, frankly, the Peace Corps model where the 
uh, career staff turn over every five or seven years in staggered ways so that you get fresh thinking. You don't get the, oh, I've seen this before. Oh, I'll just wait until these annoying people are gone, um, which is, I think, causes part of the problem. That's a long answer, too. So other, other questions? Oh, come on, it's a bright group. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. Well, I don't think there can be a neutral broker for what the private sector, the NGOs are doing. But that's why I'm a big fan of openness and transparency. I think if the government did a significantly better job of explaining what it's about, then um, it, whether you're working with other government agencies, uh, particularly DFID, which I think right now is at the bar. I mean, they're the model to which I think AID and, and MCC and others should aspire. They put their evaluations on. They're very transparent about how they make decisions. Um, the U.S. is really a laggard. But I think, uh, I think of it more like Wikipedia, and that you're going to have a whole group of folks who are talking about these things. You have a whole mass of data. Well, who's doing what? I, I don't think in terms of command and control. I don't think you can have one... Uh, dirigistic uh, kind of approach. You can't say, oh, Haiti, health, okay, you know, you're in charge. I think what you can do is say, look, take uh, cholera in Haiti, which is a tender topic for the UN. Well, who's doing what? Uh, how are they doing it? Who's funding them? What kind of grants are they doing? What, uh, what are the long-term plans? What is the government itself of Haiti doing? Um, I think there's a lot of stumbling over uh, and reinvention of the wheel. In the field, people do tend to work together. You go to, a, a, you know, a, a Jakarta. I, when I was in uh, the Appropriations Committee, I did the uh, tsunami aftermath. And so, you, you know, you go to uh, Sumatra, you go to uh, uh, some of the places there, and in the field, people are working. But the field is not where the resource decisions are made. It's somebody back in Washington or London or, or whoever who's saying, well, how much should we do? And they're ignorant. Um, they're looking at, well, I know what I did last year, so I'm going to give 10% more. Well, that may be 20% too much. It might be 40% too little. You don't know. And so I think there is kind of a, an unnecessary blindness in terms of how we operate and allocate resources. Hmm. There is one organization that could really bring together all sectors, all governments, mm -hmm. all different different factors that come into the equation. It's, it's the U.S. Mm -hmm. Obviously, supported a lot by the U.S. and Europeans. Mm -hmm. um, but how can the U.N. take a bigger role of really coordinating? If we're talking about budget, and there's no one being yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so how can the UN take role? That's, that's 
uh, well, I. <laughs> this is one of those uh, career shortening moments. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't think, frankly, the UN has that kind of role. Uh, I think the UN is a state-to-state. -state, you know, the, the members of the UN are all member governments. Um, largely, uh, the hierarchy of the UN is dominated by diplomats. The Secretary General is a Korean foreign minister. The number two is a Swedish ambassador. My boss is a, a, an Austrian diplomat. They think in terms of government-to-government -government solutions. They think in terms of what it is that they can do to control or direct. I, I think that's a complete mistake. And, and here I'm talking about uh, the UN as a development agency. It's got many other roles. I'm not talking about peacekeeping. I'm not talking about the political missions. But right now at the UN, um, you have the United Nations Development Program. You have the OCHA. You have the United Nations Environmental Program. You've got UNICEF. You've got WFP. You've got WHO. They don't talk to one another. Um, so the notion that somehow the UN, which doesn't, among its various entities, talk to itself, could somehow coordinate everybody else is, I think, not workable. I think what the UN could do in a significantly uh, different role would be to force governments and, and others to be much more transparent about what it does. But just like the folks at the State Department are very cherry about revealing all of the details about what foreign aid is about, if you go to the UNDP website, and you kind of, you know, you wade your way through and you say, okay, so who's doing what in what country? I mean, are, are the implementers local citizens? Are they local NGOs? You can't find any of that stuff. You will find tons of bilge about, well, we're working with the people of fill-in-the-blank country to promote economic justice. What the hell does any of that mean? I mean, I want to know, you're giving grants to small NGOs who are then doing what? Uh, or whatever it is. Uh, there has to be a structure for it. But right now, I think large bureaucracies are risk averse. The people who write these things are not the ones in the field. The ones in the field don't really want to tell the headquarters. And so you have kind of, uh, I think there is blindness. And I think that it takes a center to be much more disciplined in asking the questions that centers are sort of sometimes reluctant to do because it's hard <laughs> and you break crockery. Come on, come on, come on. I'm gonna, oh, yes, okay, against the outer wall. Um, you, were, you mentioned that you were interested in being a foreign service officer at yeah. some point and wanted to talk about the evolution of the State Department. Yeah, you know, I think uh, when I was in graduate school at uh, Fletcher, you know, I read Kennan's biography, autobiography, and I thought, oh, you know, what a great job. You get to travel abroad. They teach you a language. You then uh, get to write articles, and, you know, you'll be the prescient voice. Uh, I had a, uh, an older, I guess he would be a second cousin who was an ambassador. So after I took the written foreign service exam and passed it, came down for my oral interview, he said, you don't want to do this. <laughs> uh, you don't, you know, the foreign service that was so much fun in the 40s and 50s and 60s is no fun these days. Uh, you know, its primary requirement is that you'd be willing to live in really unpleasant spots. And, you know, if it's an important issue, it'll be covered from Washington. They'll send somebody out. You know, you won't be able to do anything. Um, I persisted, and I... Uh, yeah, my Foreign Service oral exam was a complete failure, um, so I never became a Foreign Service officer. But I think also the role of the Foreign Service has changed. Uh, that uh, what my 
cousin had done um, reporting, right? In fact, I think, you know, the WikiLeaks, the great thing that it's done is expose the brilliance of some of the reporting that's out there. Otherwise, there are only three people who know about weddings, uh, you know, and yet some of the best writing I've seen has been, has been in those cables, uh, which I have to say I've not read um, <laughs> as a former government employee. Uh, uh, exactly. <laughs> Um, but I think right now, you know, the large need of the Foreign Service is, is really related to visas and immigration. So if you become a Foreign Service officer, they're going to send you to Guangzhou, where you're going to work long hours interviewing people. I think it's kind of roughly equivalent to being a policeman on the beat in a really crummy neighborhood uh, in which you see crime all around you. It's not fun. Um, so, you know, my own feeling is that you ought to know what you're getting into, and if you were, like me, hoping to be the brilliant diplomat who would write the prescient cable. Um, that won't happen until you've spent uh, 10 or 15 years. And then if you're lucky, like Bill, uh, you know, the cream will rise. So. You get the Congo. <laughs> <laughs> Other questions? Yes, sir. Sure. Sure. Well, you know, I, I think, uh, put most simply, foreign aid does play a vital role, but it frequently is used in the wrong places. It's used indiscriminately. It's used blindly. I think the wonderful thing about trade is that it's like water. It just kind of flows to um, uh, where it can work. I, that said, I think there are huge dilemmas. Uh, one, uh, when you're talking about commodity extraction, you know, is it the elite of a country that is, uh, uh, you know, allowing foreign investors to sort of, whether it's farmland or timber or minerals or other resources, what, what are the ground rules? Um, two, I think that uh, just like the fires in Bangladesh, um, you know, you can make very simplistic, oh, you know, foreign trade is, is great. Um, well, what are the consequences of that? Um, again, I think, um, like the Triangle Shirt Fire, I think the fires and the building collapse in Bangladesh has forced a lot of thinking, uh, good thinking, about, well, what are, what are the rules of the road and how do we as, as buyers, as consumers, want to participate? All of that said, I think I'm a huge believer in free trade, a huge believer in, in the importance of using uh, trade as a way of uh, breaking down barriers, of moving resources and investment to where it'll get the highest return. But uh, it has to be done in the context of sovereignty. It has to be done where countries know what they're getting into, and, and uh, hopefully you've got robust political institutions in the partner countries that can look at it and not make self uh, uh, elite uh, deals that, that really don't benefit uh, large numbers of people. Yes, ma'am. Well, I think you know, just, uh, I mean, private sector is key. And I mean, uh, I think 
the not just in terms of trade, but even within a country. I mean, the vast bulk of internally generated resources provide the investment in, in all of these countries. It's the retained earnings from abattoirs or farmers or you name it that are going to really provide development. It's when you get um, enough uh, economic growth that people say, oh, well, we, we do want a good primary school. We do want good secondary schools. I, I think, you know, without economic growth, there is no development. You can't have political institutions that function without that growth. Um, I think the concern has been, you know, how do you, um, you know, AID used to talk about broad-based economic growth. Um, well, in some measure, I think that what you want are programs that uh, can be targeted at where the poorest uh, parts of a country are. Uh, when MCC was working in um, uh, Nicaragua, uh, you know, partially pre or uh, Danny, um, you know, we were working in some of the most heavily Sandinista and some of the most heavily poor parts of the country. And so it was uh, interesting to go down there and meet with the alcaldes in Leon and Chinandega and talk about what their needs were. They, they weren't different than any, you know, a mayor of... Uh, you know, a small town in upstate New York or Ohio or anywhere else. They wanted roads, they wanted schools, they wanted uh, sewers, they wanted uh, employment. And so how do you get all of that stuff? Well, how do you bring in um, either um, foreign investment or much more uh, likely uh, local investment? And how do you, you know, if it's infrastructure you need, you need a steady supply of electricity, you need a way of getting goods from point A to point B, you need cold storage facilities. How do you get all that stuff? Uh, that all has to come from the private sector. I honestly think the role of the, the government uh, you know, is important, the partner governments for setting the right constraints for whether it's safety or health or standards or, or um, making sure that financial regulations are sensible, you, know, you name it, the huge role. Um, but I think that that's, that's, the, that's the ball game. Yes, ma'am. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's a. It's obviously a pretty potent question with respect to Egypt. Uh, I, you know, it's uh, when I was uh, in college, and uh, I can remember sort of there was a bumper uh, button that said, you know, foreign aid uh, is money taken from poor people in rich countries and given to rich people in poor countries. Well, that's not really true. Um, you know, it's rare now, and I will say this, you know, when I was in Iraq and I had bricks of cash, uh, but usually the foreign aid is is a whole mixture of things. It can be technical assistance in which uh, you might have one American, uh, or not necessarily even, and four or five or six local employees, locally hired staff who are working on health regulations or... Um, educational policy changes or setting up a court docketing system. So it's, it's foreign aid is, you know, somehow this image that uh, people get on planes with bricks of cash and they fly over somewhere and they meet, you know, in a garage with a wealthy foreign dictator uh, and they sort of pass the cash. I'm sure the CIA does something like that, but that's not AID or the MCC or, you know, most of the folks who work. 
Now, you know, the real import of your question is what's the purpose of foreign aid? And in the ca case of uh, Egypt, even though I think people tried to do other things with it, to try to get the Egyptian government to liberalize its economy, to have a more open tax system, to, uh, you know, some of our foreign aid was funding a lot of the uh, NGOs and civil society, and you saw what happened after Mubarak fell, and they put a lot of these folks in jail. You know, there's a real um, desire, I think, to use foreign aid, you know, the $1 of foreign aid for 15 different purposes. And it's partially earmarking on the Hill, but frankly, it's much more within the executive branch, people trying to do nine things with that $1. So, you know, put most bluntly in the case of Egypt, we give them foreign aid because of the peace agreement with uh, Israel. And so if it does other good things, that's all well and good, but that's not its primary purpose. And I'm, you know, I'm so glad I'm not in the executive branch trying to uh, essentially explain why a coup is not a coup. Uh, <laughs> but other, other questions? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the important, if you're talking about terrorism, I mean, the importance is where you've got a failing state with weak institutions or even a, you know, a moderately viable state with weak institutions. Um, you clearly don't have the the um, uh, security apparatus uh, that, that you need to have if what you're trying to do is to prevent violence. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of the Kenyan and uh, Tanzania embassy bombings wasn't that the governments were in any way um, complicit or against it. They just didn't have the kind of knowledge or the awareness to, to stop the attacks. Uh, that's one reason why I think you have to have a multiplicity of, of foreign assistance agencies, if you will, because you can then, if what you care about are those things, then you can do it. Now, uh, I was uh, just in my hometown the other day, and, and uh, one of the... Uh, professors who lived there was a Uruguayan, and he used to talk about, uh, he grew up in Uruguay uh, during the repression years, and they used to talk about being uh, uh, shotgunned, uh, meaning that uh, American shotguns were used to, to beat up demonstrators. And so I think that, you know, the kind of security assistance that the U.S. offers is always, uh, you know, one of those things that you want to go into with a degree of, okay, what are the records on human rights? What are the controls? Um, you know, those are questions that you may still want to go ahead and work with a, a regime that doesn't have a bill of rights, uh, but on the other hand, you know, then that will taint you, and you have to be aware of that taint and, and what it means. Um, I do think we as Americans, oh, they're terrorists here. Oh, well, let's strengthen the state. Oh, well, guess what? You know, their court system is, you know, not transparent. Oh, they detain people for years. Um, it's you need to to be aware of all of those kinds of things, and that that poses some tough choices and trade offs. There's another. Well, uh, tough questions, tough climate. Um, I, you know, my advice to uh, 
folks just starting off getting out of graduate schools, get experience. It really doesn't matter where you get it overseas. Uh, but don't somehow think that relevant experience in health or education here or civic uh, local government is irrelevant. I mean, you know, how did the United States develop? It wasn't sort of in a rush, and it certainly wasn't because of uh, official foreign aid, but there were a lot of British financiers who were financing our railroads and our canals and all the rest of it. Um, the same issues, I think, uh, confront. So if you're interested in uh, getting a, a career in, in development, then I would say get as much experience as you can. It's always great to go overseas, uh, whether as a student or a worker, um, you know, I've, I've got a niece who went to Madagascar uh, for a six-month program. Uh, however you get it, get it. Um, don't worry about sort of the, the if you can afford it, uh, the, the salary. It's just it's more important in, in that uh, first set of jobs that you be able to decide for yourself, okay, I really love this. I like working in a chaotic environment. I don't. I like working with... People have very different viewpoints, or I don't. Uh, I can learn a foreign language, or I can't. Um, but I wouldn't. Uh, there's no one ideal. Uh, I think once upon a time it would have been, you know, join the Peace Corps, or go from the Peace Corps to join AID. I think that's a little uh, warping in the sense that a lot of the AID staff that I met who were former Peace Corps volunteers, their most satisfying moment was working in a village with somebody, and so therefore they wanted to replicate that experience but with a lot more resources. Well, that's valuable. I'm not knocking it, but it's not in any way the only way that you can get experience. If you're an accountant and you've worked in a small bank, you know, in a small town in Virginia, that may be more relevant to what uh, the banking sector in, in Kenya or Nairobi, uh, Kenya or some other country needs. You understand what it takes. Uh, so get experience, um, travel, uh, study, work abroad as best you can. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, when I got out of uh, graduate school, it was the same thing. There were government freezes and layoffs, uh, but not anywhere near the same extent that I've seen now. When I talk with friends still in government, it's it's dreadful. Um, you know, furloughs, uh, folks at OMB, I think once every two weeks, you know, you call on a Monday and you say, I'm on furlough today. Well, that's terrible. Um, I think that that's a, a real problem. And it's going to be a problem for the next two or three years. But that's why I think it's important to don't look to the government as your first experience. Um, go and see other things. Uh, work for an NGO. Work uh, for a contractor. Uh, so, Okay. New, um, new. He seems to be uh, lessening his focus on economic development and focusing more on health and agriculture. Is, is that a trend and do you see that continuing? Well, you know, it's uh, Bill and I... Uh, I don't know, maybe two years ago, uh, we, we were sort of sitting somewhere in, in one of the rooms here, and I brought a book that I just picked up on foreign aid, and it was written in the 1960s, and it was, the new focus is agriculture, education, and health. So, you know, in some sense, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, I think with Raj, clearly that's his interest, um, and that's what he brings. Um, I think... Uh, aid has been around long enough so that they've been through these kinds of cycles. Um, aid is is kind of a, you know, it's the Swiss army knife of the U.S. government for foreign assistance. Oh, you know, you want commodities? We can do that. Oh, you want emergency assistance? We can do that. 
I think economic growth and trade are hugely important. As I say, I, I think that that's where um, econ uh, that's where real development will come from. The question is, what is AIDS' role in promoting that? And you can do it through public-private partnerships. You can do it through talking up. You can do it through uh, uh, providing technical assistance at, at key points. But I think you also have to say it's not just because you label it economic growth and, and trade doesn't mean that it actually works. And so you really have to dig down two or three levels. Uh, when I was at Booz Allen, we bid on a project in um, Armenia. And it was to, it was a $50 million, I think, uh, three-year project. And it was, you know, the notion was that we were going to pick um, sectors indeterminate, uh, and we were going to try and do um, uh, value-added work so that these unknown sectors would export more. And I thought, well, this is ridiculous. It doesn't tell you what sectors. It doesn't tell you, you know, who, you don't know who in Armenia is doing what. Um, you know, the government, uh, the economy of Armenia is heavily agriculture. But aside from brandy and some other things, you know, most of it was not really uh, exportable. And so setting up a, uh, an economic growth project that um, you really didn't know what it was going to do with the evaluation being that you would uh, grow exports by 10% for these unknown products by unknown companies, uh, that, well, that's, that's a waste of money. Um, but those are the kinds of hard questions that you can ask when you've gotten into the belly of the beast. There's another question some, somewhere. Somebody had asked one. Yes, ma'am. I think it's it's really two education and health. Um, we've put a ton of money into health, particularly AIDS and and communicable diseases. Um, we put a ton of money into education as well. There's been the uh, President Bush had the education uh, initiative in Africa. People want to do things. The flip side uh, is that these are inherently local government responsibilities. Um, you know, when you look around the U.S., there's not a, um, you know, there's not the, the, the most of the hospitals and schools are run by local groups. Uh, it's not funded by a foreign aid agency coming in. I, I think the big transition that, that is coming uh, for the U.S. foreign assistance programs in health and education is how do you transition to locally run institutions? Uh, and, you know, is it really outside resources that they need to build a hospital? Well, if you build a hospital, where are the nurses and doctors coming from? Where are the medic medicines coming from? It's not sustainable to do what we've been doing and without vastly more resources. And I would tend to argue that it would be much, much, much better if local countries were able to run their own health systems, run their own educational systems. Um, but if you have groups that are essentially built on uh, providing commodities, uh, you know, I was part of the supply chain management system uh, for AIDS programs. And, you know, there was no question that uh, for the vendors who were involved in the program, both NGOs and, and uh, uh, for-profit agencies, the goal was not how to put yourself out of business. It was how to keep it going. Uh, and so that's why I think uh, whether at aid or at the State Department or at the White House, you really have to have a, well, what's, what's your end game? What's your vision? And if it's just sort of continued flows as long as, as far as the eye can see, that's not sustainable in the current environment. And at some point, 
you stop and then 10 million people die. Well, that's not a desirable outcome. Does anyone have one last question? Oh, okay. Yeah, so you mentioned that, excuse me, you mentioned that um, there's been a problem uh, of information with, uh, with governments knowing how much to budget mm -hmm. for um, overseas projects. Do you think that that's also reflected in where to provide that money, where yeah. to direct it? And do you think that private sector um, aid kind of better senses where money needs to go than government because of that bureaucracy and that separation? Of yeah, well, it, it's... <coughs> It's more, you get a, you have 10,000 people making 10,000 decisions. Uh, you know, Coca-Cola wants to build a clean uh, uh, water plant because they're gonna do bottling. Um, you have a uh, you know, investor who decides to, they wanna put in a packaging plant in Ghana because they, they think that they can export pineapples to uh, Switzerland. You know, there's no direction, no control, uh, but the enabling environment, uh, you know, that will allow you to have a, a cold storage system, will allow you to have the air, uh, aircraft routes to, to fly this way. You know, those are all things that the private sector does 10 million times a day. Um, they're not things that the government is very good at. And so, you know, in terms of public-private partnerships, you know, we tried to do some of this in Ghana, but. Frankly, by the time we would sort of get to, okay, we're going to do a, you know, a $25 million small farm holder uh, investment in pineapples in this region, you know, if Dole and the others hadn't already done it, then it sort of made you wonder, well, why are we doing it? Uh, you know, money would be sucked from the moon if there were a good investment opportunity. So. Okay, go ahead, and that's it. Mm. Sure. Uh, well, I, I think the mindsets are different. Uh, that um, you know, people who joined the government in the 1960s, I think, expected you know to stay their entire career doing something. And you know, you joined the State Department, you joined AID, you joined Kodak. Uh, and you're going to be there your entire career. That's changed. I think people now look around and say, oh, well, I've spent three years here. Um, I've gotten out of it what I can. It's time to move on. You know, I need to get, you know, I mean, it could be money, title, responsibility, different kind of experience. I, I think there's a more experimental attitude, and I think that's good. I think the problem for the government is that it's very... Um, reliant on folks like Bill and others who've been through this kind of thing. And when, when you know, the Ambassador Garvelinks go, well, who replaces them? And do you have the kind of institutional processes that are necessary to bring in, train, and, and have people? And what if your entire incentive structure is based on seniority and you have to stay there 20 years in order to get any job satisfaction? Well, that's, that's, that's hard. I, I think uh, the combination of really stale, outdated, outmoded personnel practices and budget sequesters are going to be you know, horrible for the government. It's going to take really the, the true believers to, to kind of stay. Um, I think, on the other hand, there are going to be a lot more op opportunities out there. It's no longer that, well, your choice is AID or nothing. It's going to be, well, do you want to work for Gates? And you go there and you spend two years. Oh, do you want to set up your own NGO? Do you want to do something entirely different? Do you want to work at a, 
a think tank? Do you want to work uh, for Caterpillar? Uh, there are more choices now, and that's good. Uh, the government is probably not a great place for the next uh, two or three years to start from. But I think, frankly, they're going to need exactly the kind of talent and, and skill set you bring. My only word of advice would be that I think if you go in saying, I'm interested in this, um, I mean, frankly, the government doesn't sit there saying, gosh, we need people who are interested in human rights. What they're going to look at and say is, okay, I need a lawyer, I need an accountant, I need somebody who's got this kind of field work. Um, the problem that I'm solving is X. That translation, I think, is hard for a lot of people because they uh, uh, grow up thinking that because they're interested in a global problem, gender, the environment, human rights, um, that there's a ready market for those things. And I'd say, well, think about your skill sets. You know, good writing, good analytical skills, uh, you know, whatever. That, that's what you want to bring to the potential employer. Okay, well, I think this has been a very rich discussion and a broad, <coughs> broad range of issues. Please join me in thanking Rodney. <laughs>